Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. So we are doing this series called Awe and Eternity, because as you read the book of Revelation, it opens our eyes to know Jesus, to know the future, to know our victory, to know who He is and who we are in Him. And that is a powerful thing for your life. And so we want to encourage you in that today. Since the, the, the theme of our country this weekend is victory, um, I want to share a message with you from Revelation 19 entitled, The Feast of Victory. The Feast of Victory. If you're taking notes, we encourage you to take some notes. You can do that. You can write down The Feast of Victory. And, uh, and we're going to be in Revelation 19. Um, I'm going to get there in a little bit. But I want to talk to you a little bit about what we have in Jesus, what we have in this relationship with Jesus, how it affects us, how it impacts our lives, um, and, and how it causes us to be victorious, not just in the ultimate sense, but in the everyday sense, how God uses uh, His presence in our lives to encourage us and to give us victory. And so we're going to have two or three more weeks in this series of Revelation, we've done up to chapter 18, and chapter 19 is this incredibly powerful chapter. We've seen all kinds of catastrophe, all kinds of battles, all kinds of, of judgments that have been poured out as the world uh, comes to an end, as history gets wrapped up in victory. And we pause here in Revelation 19 to, to see what Jesus does with His church in the midst of all the catastrophe and all the hardships and, and all the battles of this world. There's this feast that takes place. It's a feast of victory. And in this, Jesus shows us who he is and how he works. Have you ever wondered, as you're going through life, as you're going through battles, as you're going through difficulties, have you ever wondered, like, where is Jesus in this? Like, I've heard all the stories and I've been to Sunday school and I've seen the scriptures. But in this moment, when I face this crisis, when I'm going through this hardship, when there's no money in my bank account, or my marriage is falling apart, or my kids don't want to talk to me, or I'm, I'm facing whatever calamity it is in my career or in any other sphere of my life, where is Jesus now? Like, how is He present now? How, is, how does all of that help me in this moment in what I face? How does it become real? Have you even, maybe you've wondered one step beyond that, like, who is this Jesus? I've heard so much said about him. People talk about him. People say he's good. People say he's gracious. The pastor preaches it on Sunday. But who is that Jesus to me? Have you personally come to know him? Or is it just something that you know about? Is it just something that you've heard about? You wouldn't be the only person in this world that's ever had that kind of a perspective on Jesus. All of us only know about Jesus until we know Jesus, until we've met Jesus, until we've, we've sat down with Jesus and, and we've experienced his presence and his goodness. And there were people like this um, just after Jesus was crucified. And it had gone beyond the Sunday, and Jesus had resurrected, but, but only a few had seen him. Only the disciples were talking about the fact that Jesus had been resurrected. And we find in Scripture these two guys that are walking on a road towards the town of Emmaus. And as they're walking, they're talking about all the stuff, the rumors and the things they've heard about Jesus. And is it true? Isn't it true? And all of a sudden, Jesus comes alongside them. Jesus begins to walk with them. It's seven-mile journey that they're walking, and Jesus is walking with them, but they don't realize or recognize that it's Jesus. They don't know that Jesus is with them, even though he's walking, and he, they begin to ask him questions. Have you heard about this Jesus 
fellow. And I just love that Jesus does stuff like this. You know, he, he begins to walk with us even before we realize he's walking with us. He begins to journey with us even before we realize he's journeying with us. How many of you have come to a place in your life where God has done something significant and you've looked back and realized, wow, Jesus was actually with me all the way. I didn't even know at the time. I believe that Jesus disciples people even before they believe in him, that he begins to speak to them, that he begins to reveal himself to their hearts, that they begin to experience the impact of his presence in their lives even before they've made a declaration of faith. Ultimately, Jesus disciples us into faith. This is a beautiful thing. So Jesus begins to walk with them, and he begins to show them that, have you heard about Jesus? And he goes, let me show you the Scriptures. And Jesus begins to speak to them about the Old Testament Scriptures, the prophecies and, and, and the writings of Moses and everything in the Old Testament, showing how all of it points towards him. Jesus is the center of our faith. He's the center of the Bible. He's everything, every chapter, every page whispers his name. It's all about Jesus. And so he begins to speak to them and, and show them these things. But still, it's theology. It's theory. They, they're feeling something, but they haven't seen him. They don't recognize who he truly is just yet. So in Luke 24, verse 28, they had come to this town, this village that they were walking towards. And it says, so when they drew near to the village to which they were going, he acted as if he were going farther. Isn't that awesome about Jesus? that when he walks with you, sometimes he'll pretend like he's going further just to be polite, but really what he wants is he wants to hang out. Have you ever done that with like friends, whatever, you're not sure if they want to hang out more or not? Like I have friends like this, like they'll come over for breakfast and then it'll be breakfast and we'll hang out and be like, do you guys, you want to go to lunch? I mean, how you, you know, or when you're like, yo, we really have to go home. And they're like, do you guys want to have lunch? Yo, yo, let's have lunch. You know, like you pretend like you didn't want, and Jesus does this. He acts as if he was going somewhere else. And in that instant, they invite him in. This is the heart of Jesus. He doesn't just want to journey with you a little bit. He doesn't want to stand far away in heaven. He doesn't want to just point at you and say, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. He wants to eat with you. He wants to sit with you. He wants to have a meal with you. This is what salvation looks like. It looks like a meal. It looks like a relationship. It looks like the marriage feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19. It looks like people coming together around a table, celebrating and communing and, and, and talking and loving and, and experiencing and sharing together. That's what it looks like, what salvation looks like. And so it says, they, they urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it is toward the evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. That's salvation. When you invite Jesus in, he comes in and he comes to stay. He comes to be with us. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now, this is, was really just another uh, episode of what he had done on the night that he was betrayed. On that night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. We did that this morning in communion. He broke the bread. And that was a symbol. That was a flashback to the cross. This is what I did for you on the cross. And in that instant, as he broke the bread and gave it to them, their eyes were opened. Now, how many of you would agree with me that they weren't walking blind for those seven miles, right? They weren't like falling over rocks and like rolling down the path. And Jesus is like, what are you guys doing? Open your eyes so you can see where you're walking. They were seeing, but they weren't seeing. They were perceiving physically, but the eyes of their heart had not been enlightened. And so there's more than one form of sight. 
There's physical sight, but there's spiritual sight. There's when your heart becomes enlightened with what the truth is, you begin to see things in a brand new way. So as Jesus gives them the bread, they think of the cross, they realize their eyes are opened up. And the moment their eyes are opened up, he vanishes from their sight. You know why that is? Because when you have faith in Jesus, when you've sat down and you've had intimacy with him, you've talked to him, you've heard his voice, you've experienced his heart, you've eaten with Jesus, not just heard about him. All of a sudden, your heart is enlightened. And whether you see him physically or not, doesn't really matter. You don't need to see in order to believe. People say seeing is believing in our world, but in the gospels, believing is seeing. When you put your faith in Jesus, you don't need to see physically. He's present. I said this morning, God is present in this place. People are like, oh, yeah, you know, pastors always say that. But I can see with a sight that isn't physical. I can know with a knowledge that isn't earthly knowledge. I have spiritual vision and spiritual insight, and I can experience the presence of Jesus without him having to appear physically before me because the eyes of my heart have been enlightened. I've eaten with Jesus. And that's what God invites us to. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened to us the scriptures? You see, when God begins to walk with you, there's this unshakable sense, there's this burning, there's this passion that begins to rise up in your heart. And you know, God is saying something to me here. I can't perceive him. I don't exactly know who Jesus is, where he is, how, how it's all working, but I can experience that God is doing something in my life. And in a moment, when you sit down at the table, in other words, you receive salvation, your eyes are opened up and you begin to see him powerfully. Before this moment, these guys had only heard of rumors of Jesus. They'd only had theology. They'd only heard, oh, he was raised from the dead, the prophecies and, and the theologies and the rumors. Even when he spoke to them from the scriptures, they still didn't see him. They still didn't truly know who he was. But there comes a moment when we accept God's invitation to sit down at the table. And this is ultimately what Revelation 19 is God's last word on salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Can I tell you what it means first and foremost? It means to do this, to take a seat at the table. You know, when you sit at a table, how many of you have ever been invited by somebody that you don't know to a dinner? And then you're like iffy about whether or not you actually want to do it. You know why? Because you're worried that it's going to be awkward, okay? Anybody ever felt that way? Like you're going to dinner with somebody that you've just met, and you're like, I really hope this isn't going to be awkward because you don't know them. You don't know who they are. You don't know if they have the same sense of humor. You don't know if they'll enjoy your jokes. You don't know whether you guys have anything in common. Are there going to be those awkward silences, you know, where, where you don't know what to talk about, so you start talking about the weather. It, it's a vulnerable place to be in, to sit down at somebody's dinner table. It's intimate. It's vulnerable. It's real. And we're not sure whether we're comfortable doing this with everybody. We, we become selective over who we meet with, and, and we begin to apply really the, the, the ethos of our culture today, in our world today. Our modern culture is fast food everything. Relationship second, instant gratification first. That's the culture of our world. And we apply that to our faith. We apply that to our Christianity. How many of you visitors today, don't put up your hand, 
when you were given that card, when we welcomed you to put your details down, you were like, I think I'm going to put an incorrect number down on here, or I don't know if I want to fill this out because I don't want this church phoning me, <laughs> right? I know the struggle is real, but you know why? Because we don't really want to be vulnerable. We don't really want to be known. We don't really, people value anonymity in our world so much because without, when there's anonymity, there's no accountability. But the problem is you can't have community without commitment. People apply that fast food generation to their faith with Jesus and then wonder why they still feel hungry. You know, they apply it to their faith in the sense that, oh, for me, my faith with Jesus means I'll go to church quickly on a Sunday. And if it runs over one hour and 20 minutes, like I'm finding a new church because they go way too long at that church. Like it's fast food, it's instant. It's, I just want my my, my bite to eat. Sometimes we choose what we're gonna eat based on how quickly it can get, it can be made and be made ready, right? Lee and I, Friday night, we were both tired after a long week of work and we were like, what can we do that's just quick? We went to Woolies and we just bought like all the small things, like small burgers, small samosas, like small pancakes. We're like, that's dinner. One minute later, we were eating and we applied that to our faith. But your walk with Jesus is not driving through the drive-thru at McDonald's. I've never felt that driving through the drive-thru might be awkward or like I'm too vulnerable when I'm ordering my Happy Meal, right? I don't do that, but I'm just using it as an illustration, right? So, but what faith really looks like, it really looks like saying, pause everything. I take a seat at the table of the Lord. And you know who sits at that table? Jesus. And I get to know Jesus. I get to be intimate with Jesus. I get to share my heart with Jesus. And not only Jesus, this is, I only had small space on the stage today. I said four places here. But this is a large table because, yes, it's intimate between Jesus and I, but it's also all of us. We've all been invited to the table to share that kind of intimacy and community, not just with him, but with each other. This gives the social shape to our salvation. What does salvation look like in real terms for the church? Look around. That's what it looks like. Friendships, family people caring about each other, people loving each other, people encouraging one another, people being united. Do you know what you often have to do at the table? How many times have you sat at the table and somebody's knocked a glass of water or a glass of wine over and it spilled all over you? Being at the table is a place of forgiveness. It's a place of sharing. You see all the sweet potato fries, you want them all for yourself, but there's other people at the table. And so we share. It's community. It's fellowship. This is the shape of salvation. It's a meal with Jesus. It's not a diploma on the wall. It's not a a set of ethical behaviors or like a rule book of how to live life. That's not what it is. It's intimacy with Jesus. And out of that intimacy, like we read this morning in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we behold him, we are transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is not just ethical behavioral patterns or subjective devotions. It's a meal. How many of you have ever eaten a meal or love to eat a meal alone? If you put your hand up, that's weird, right? Except if you have kids, then it's totally understandable. Like, please let me just be alone during this meal. 
I don't know if you're like me, I buy sweets sometimes and then I hide them from my kids and I just wait for them to go to bed. I'm like, oh, just sleep now, just sleep now, boy. I've got to go, I've got other stuff to do. So I understand it if you're a parent, but in general, when you eat alone, you begin to feel like this is a little sad. Have you ever eaten alone? It's like Beauty and the Beast and the Beast is sitting at this long table like by himself. It's a sad picture. Something in you says, this is not what it was meant to be like. Eating means we're together. We equal, we accept each other. We invite strangers. That's why we invite people to church. Because the meal is Jesus. He is the bread. He is the wine. He is the life. Jesus was sitting at a dinner at one point in the, in the Gospels and somebody got up and said, blessed is anyone who eats bread in the kingdom of heaven. Who eats bread. It's talking about partaking in Jesus. So, so it really looks like not just sitting at the table, but drinking of the life of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus, and eating of the bread of Jesus. Like this is his body. And, and when we partake, when we, when we do communion, when we come to church, that life becomes our life. We know him we have intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Look at how Revelation 3.20 says exactly this. Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The picture of salvation. Eating together, vulnerable, real, authentic. If you're visiting with us today, we, we strive to be authentic in our faith. We don't want to be religious. We don't want to just do duties and, and share rules and whatever. We want to talk about the heart of Jesus for you. It's to come in and to eat with you, that you will know him and he will know you. This is the heart of salvation. We see this in Jesus' life. His first miracle was at a wedding, a celebration of intimacy, a celebration of unity and, and, and union between two people. And Jesus takes the water that was meant for the rites of purification the law, and he turns it into the wine of blessing, the covenant, his blood. We see how Jesus is, I often say that it's a good thing that Jesus walked wherever he went because otherwise we would have had pictures of a fat Jesus because of how much he eats in the scriptures. Every second verse, Jesus is eating with somebody. He's eating with all people. His first act after the resurrection, this is how we know Jesus loved South Africa. First thing he does when he sees his disciples again he makes a braai on the beach, right? The guys are fishing. He makes a little fire. They see it's Jesus. Peter dives in. He says, bring the fish, a little snook braai with some chutney, right? That's what Jesus did. He ate with them. This is how Jesus restores them. It's in the meal that Peter gets restored. It's in the meal that the disciples receive their ministry. And so many of us are looking for the restoration, we're looking for the healing, we're looking for the calling, but we're not sitting at the table. Sit at the table, have the intimacy, have the relationship with Jesus, and all the rest flows out from that. Jesus regularly ate with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and thugs. That's God's heart with Zacchaeus. It's where Zacchaeus learned of salvation, and it's where he instituted the communion, saying, this salvation this victory that we have in Jesus over evil and over sin is what communion is really about. He says, remember what I've done for you. I have bought your place at the table. You don't earn your way to the table. You don't work your way to the table. You're not a re religious enough for the table. Remember what I've done for you. 
and proclaim it and keep believing in it until I come again. And so we do live in the space between the incarnation and, and the return. And like I mentioned this morning, the space between can be difficult. It can be filled with battles. You're like, well, it just sounds so amazing. We just sit and sip wine with Jesus and we just, but what about the battles I face when I go to work on Monday? What about the discouragement that I'm carrying around in my heart right now, even as I sit here? And this is where the feast empowers us for the future and for every battle that we fight. In Revelation 19, 6, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. He's victorious. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Granted, that's grace. That's imputed righteousness, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're invited. Every person in this room, you've been invited to come and sit at the table with Jesus. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. One translation says, happy are those who have been invited to the wedding feast. It's joy, it's peace. And this meal isn't happening separate from the catastrophe of our world. Just like in Revelation 19, it's not separated from everything that's happened in the book of Revelation. You need a strong stomach to digest what we've read about from the, the seven seals and the bowls and the trumpets and the catastrophes on earth. But in the midst of the catastrophe, it, it doesn't, this isn't, we have a meal in the midst of it. It doesn't separate itself from the hardship of this world, but gives us victory in the midst of it. It's respite in the midst of it. And when Jesus shows up in Revelation 19, he doesn't just have a nice feast and go, okay, well, let the earth just deal with itself. No, Jesus comes as the rider on the white horse to banish every form of evil. We've read about the false prophet and the beast and the, the forces of religious uh, deception and, and political coercion and Satan himself. And Jesus in Revelation 19 and 20 rides in as the warrior on the white horse to give ultimate victory to his people. So it's a meal. Number one, salvation is a meal but number two, salvation is war. It's a battle. And oftentimes when people read about Revelation 19, we'll look at that scripture now, they go, they go well, it's a battle. It's going to happen in the Valley of Armageddon, and it's like this whole thing. And, and yes, there will be this battle in the end time. But it's also the battle that we face daily. When you go to work on, on a Monday, oftentimes that's your Armageddon. Armageddon simply means the mountain of Megiddo, which was this mountain range around the valley of Megiddo, and at the foot of that range was the city, a fortress city of Megiddo, and that valley was known as the Valley of Jezreel, and in the Old Testament, all of Israel's battles were fought in that, in that valley. You know what the beautiful thing is? When you go out tomorrow, or even this afternoon, and you feel like, I'm still fighting a battle, like church was great, but I'm still fighting a battle, guess what? Jesus is on the battlefield. Jesus is on the battlefield. And he's already given us the victory. He's already victorious. So there's no danger in fighting. The only danger for us as Christians is in the not fighting. When you decide not to fight. The safest place in your life 
is in the middle of the battle because that's where Jesus is and he is victorious. He's already overcome every force that will seek to discourage and tear down your life. Every catastrophe that you have faced, Jesus is with you in the midst of it. Right now, he's with you. So we shouldn't reduce the size of the battle. Sometimes we try and convince ourselves, no, there's no real battle. I'm fine. And the world's answer to salvation or counterpart to salvation is positivism. No, let's just be positive. Like Brent spoke about this morning, the rugby was great. But how many of you know it'll take about a week until the, the, the posts about crime and corruption and difficulties and, and, and the strength of the land and all that stuff will, be, will overcome all the positivism. This isn't naive positivism. In fact, we don't diminish the size of the battle because the greater the battle, the greater the salvation. Instead, we look to the size of our God in the midst of the battle. That's what gives us the right perspective. The Bible says those that have been forgiven much, love much. Those who have been forgiven a little, love a little. And all of us have been forgiven much. The problem is if you don't realize it. So the more we realize how much Jesus has given us the victory, the more we grow in our relationship with him. I love the fact that what Jesus gives us and when he institutes the communion, it's real bread that he gives us. Like we bought this at spa this morning, all right? So this is real bread. It's not supernatural bread. And contrary to what some denominations believe, if I was to touch this bread or you were to touch this bread, it wouldn't turn into anything other than just bread. It's just normal bread. This is just normal wine. It's just normal wine. Just like you are just a human person in one sense. We're flesh and blood. But with this salvation... There's something supernatural. What I'm trying to say is that your life, your normal everyday life is normal and everyday, but at the same time, it's supernatural. It turns out that salvation doesn't just look like Jesus on Golgotha, but also Christ in me. He's not just Jesus on the hill. He's Jesus that's taken up residence in your heart. And this is the beauty of the salvation that we have. Look at the battle. Revelation 19, 11 says, Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head he has many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, pure, white and pure, were following him on white Horses, that's all of us. We are in the battle with Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is victory. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our victorious God. We've often spoke about this. People go, I don't like that image of Jesus. Can we go back to the image of Jesus with the lamb? You only say that until you're in the battle. You only say that until your own salvation begins to face opposition, until somebody in your family has cancer, until your marriage is breaking down, until people come against you. Then all of a sudden, we want the rider on the white horse. This is a hopeful image. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is the answer to the catastrophe. God overtakes our catastrophe. Colossians 2 verse 15 says, In this way, 
He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took care of every demonic force that wants to come against our lives. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray and he said, God, deliver us from evil, he was arming them for a life of salvation. And so we don't fight for victory anymore, church. We fight from a place of victory. We fight because we are victorious. We sit at the meal. That place of seatedness is normally what you would do once the battle has already been won. But in the life of faith, we sit first. And in the sitting is our victory. And we battle. And we're able to fight daily against temptation and injustice and deceit in us and in our communities. From the table to the battlefield is what our salvation looks like. Jesus was only allowed and only allows us one weapon in this fight. It's actually, when you read it, it's a little anticlimactic because you thought that this was going to be this long, drawn-out battle, like a, like, like a three-hour movie scene, this massive battle that was going to take place. But it just turns out Jesus shows up, and the sword just takes care of all of it. In an instant, he's victorious. And we find that the same is true for our lives. Because on his thigh, it says, King of kings, Lord of lords, he's well identified. His word, Jesus' word, is who he is. And by nature of who he is, and who we are in him, when we declare that word, we have the victory as well. The Bible says that the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, is a part of our armor, the armor that we have. So we are victorious in Jesus as we declare his word over our lives. You have a weapon for the battles. It's God's word. It's the truth of who you are in Jesus. That's all we're allowed when Jesus spoke words, when he encountered demonic spirits in the Gospels, he spoke a word. And what happened to the people? Were they destroyed? No, they were set free. The word of God through us to our city is not condemnation. It's not destruction. It's freedom. It's liberty from what the enemy would want with their lives. Eugene Peterson says, too many Christians get caught up in end-time fantasies and forget about the daily valor of dogged obedience, sacrificial love, and alert endurance. That's where the battle is. That final meal that Jesus had, he sits with his disciples, he eats with them, he goes into the garden, and all of a sudden armies flood to arrest him, flood into the garden. There's a battle, there's, there's a meal, and there's a battle. But in the meal, we have the victory for the battle. We eat together. We fight together. The good fight of faith. I want to end on Psalm 23 because Psalm 23 is in essence the scriptural counterpart of Revelation 19. Revelation 19, we have a feast and we have a battle. There's the intimacy with Jesus and there's the victory in Jesus. And those two are inseparable. And we see this in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me, my soul, beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's the meal. That's the intimacy. 
He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Here comes the battle. You're saying, I have a meal. I come to church on Sunday. I hear a word. I feel inspired. But then Monday comes. Even though I walk through the valley, Megiddo, Jezreel, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He's with you in the battle, church. He's with you in the battle. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me. Where? Devoid of enemies? No. In their presence. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a meal. There's an intimacy. There's a relationship with Jesus here. There's partaking of His grace and His life that empowers you to face every battle that you are facing right now with courage. How many of you have wondered this week, is this battle going to be too big for me? Is this the one that's going to take me out? I want you to know today that if you have sat at the table of the Lord and you keep sitting at the table of the Lord, then you have everything that you need to have victory in your life and in every battle you may face. And this is Revelation 19, the feast and the battle. And at the end of it, Jesus takes the, the false prophet and the beast and the, the Antichrist and, and, uh, and, and Satan himself. And he casts them into the lake of fire. He deals with it in the ultimate sense. And that's the future that we can look forward to. God has overcome every principality and power and force of darkness that may come against your life. We have the victory in Jesus. The victory is in the feast. It's a feast of victory. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand together this morning as we pray?